Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. But we are awaiting a conversation with Virgin Atlantic CEO Richard Branson and Social Capital CEO uh, Chamath uh, Palihapati. And he is coming uh, to speak with Bloomberg's Bonnie Quinn and Guy Johnson to talk about a new venture to take space tourism public. Uh, that is uh, Virgin Galactic's effort to bring people to space who want to just experiencing it, experience it, how there could be an initial public offering uh, and raise equity in it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether there is a big profit to be made here, as well as what the links will be uh, between the uh, the public venture and the private uh, and the private endeavor to try to go to space and the uh, the NASA type of uh, agents in the government. In other words, how much will the U.S. sort of lean on private companies, or in this case, public companies, to uh, influence their decisions with respect to to uh, with with respect to decisions uh, with respect to space uh, exploration. Joining us now to talk about that is Christopher Jasper, transport and aviation reporter for Bloomberg News. Christopher, what are we expecting to hear, and what have we learned so far about Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic space tourism venture going public? Um, well, it, it's using a somewhat unorthodox method to do this, rather than going down an IPO route. Uh, He's going to accomplish a listing through a merger with a listed shell company in New York, uh, which will hand over a 49% stake in the enlarged group and raise about $800 million uh, to take the project further. Uh, that seems to suggest that uh, maybe an IPO might not have been a good idea. There's still quite a lot of skepticism out there, perhaps, about whether um, space tourism really can work. We know that he's got about 600 people signed up having uh, paid $80 million uh, in, in deposits uh, to travel. Uh, but the whole plan uh, suggests uh, by his reckoning that there may be millions of people uh, who would be interested in flying to the edge of space if the price can be brought down enough. Uh, and if you're going to invest in uh, Virgin Galactic long term, then that's really the bet that you're taking. Would you want to go to space? Well, I would like to go to space, absolutely. <laughs> but I think people need to understand that this isn't a trip to the moon. Right. It's not. It's not a, even a trip into high Earth orbit uh, where you can see the entire planet beneath you. This is essentially to the edge of space where you get to see the curvature of the Earth and you right. experience weightlessness for a limited time. But you know, you're you're, yeah. you're not sort of going to feel like you're in Apollo Eleven uh, <laughs> or the or, or the International Space which, Station, which perhaps is what people are looking for. Christopher Jasper, thank you so much for being with us. Christopher Jasper is transport and aviation reporter for Bloomberg News. We are going to hear from Virgin Atlantic CEO himself, Richard Branson, as well as Social Capital's CEO. They're going to be talking about this joint venture, space tourism, going public with an IPO. Take a listen. We'd like to welcome now our Bloomberg radio and TV audiences. Billionaire Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic is becoming the first ever space tourism venture to hit public markets. This after receiving an $800 million investment from the publicly traded Social Capital. We're joined now by Richard Branson and Social Capital co-founder Chamas Palihapitia. 
Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. Richard, how did this meeting come about? I know that you had been in talks with the likes of Saudi Arabia and possibly other players as well. You pulled out of those after the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, for example, and that brought you to this meeting. Explain the origins of this investment. Well, um, when we sadly couldn't go ahead with the Saudis, um, uh, I decided that I would fund Virgin Galactic to profitability myself through, through the Virgin Group. Um, and then we got a call from Shamath, who um, said that he was keen to have a look. Um, and he went to see our space people, spent some months looking into it. And I'll let the, the, yeah. why don't you carry on from there? Well, I mean, I, I'd been an admirer of the business from afar. Um, and then we had a bunch of mutual friends who were early customers. Um, so I was always wondering what's really under the hood. And when I got to see the business, I was pretty floored, quite honestly, about what they built and uh, the quality of the business that it would become. And so it took us nine months, but we got here. And you were going to be chairman of the board with a $100 million personal investment as well. So Richard, did you talk with other funds? Did you look for other backers in Asia, for example, or in the Middle East? No. Um, we, we um, uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, we, the, 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 we did have the deal from the Saudis. That, that was not possible. Um, and. Uh, and you know, if we were to, to, to actually take this public ourselves, it would take a, a, a long time. So uh, I think the, the Shamath's approach seemed to work very well for us. Shamath, was this the last roll of the dice for you? My understanding is that the fund would have had to return investment money in September. Um, Richard talked about the fact that this has been nine months in the gestation. Uh, it was, it was, you were cutting it a bit fine, weren't you? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, we'd met uh, more than 200 companies uh, over many, many countries over the last two years. Um, it, does, it did take us nine months to do the diligence required to really get under the hood and understand what they built and to feel comfortable across all aspects of the business. Could we have done an, uh, another one? Sure. Could we have invested in something else? Yeah. Um, but I think that we found the absolute best company, something that'll thrive in the public markets. And frankly, something that's going to capture an enormous amount of consumer interest, giving the average person a chance to own a bit of space. And I think there's, uh, frankly, nothing more exciting than that. Richard, the average person's going to own a bit of space. When is the first flight going to be? Let's try and nail that down. <laughs> um, now that we're a public company, I'm going to have to be very circumspect in what I say. Um, so what's, hap what's happening at the moment is we're moving the whole operation to New Mexico. Um, and... Uh, and that's where the spaceport is. Um, we're, we're moving our rockets there. Um, we're, we're moving our spaceships there. We're moving our uh, motherships there. Um, then we'll do a few um, final test flights from New Mexico in the new, in the new situation. Um, and then I'll go up, and then, and then we'll, uh, the public will go up. Um, I'm not going to give a specific date, because I'm, I'm told I'm not allowed to. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we've had two very successful flights into space recently. Um, we've made five astronauts, the first five astronauts to be made in America since 2009. Um, so we're, we're you, know, you know, after 14 years of hard work getting this far, um, we feel we're on, on the verge of something very special. Now, it's very exciting because you specialize in suborbital flights, slightly different from Jeff Bezos' outfit and also Elon Musk's outfit. They're looking at slightly other segments of space, if you like. 56 miles above the Earth and three times the speed of sound, which you have now hit. You did say that you'll go up in 2019. Will you? 
Uh, if, uh, the, if, if our brave test pilots are ready to say to me they, they've now tested the craft um, through and through, I will, I will go up when they tell me to go up. Um, but um, whether, it's, whether it's by the end of this year or slips into next year, we'll see. How many customers have paid, what, a quarter of a million dollars? What's it up to now? So we, we closed out um, uh, booking people five years ago because we had uh, 600 customers. We got $80 million on deposits. Um, since the fl test flight, we've had 2,500 more people saying they want to come in. Um, and you know, our research indicates that there's a, a very large number of people. You know, this, is a, this is an incredibly capacity-constrained market. Um, just servicing the customers we have will take two, two and a half years. Once you convert some of these 2,500 people, the first three or four years of operation is um, uh, already mostly spoken for. Okay, uh, but Chamath, let me just kind of, I, I'm going to try and kind of, after what you just said and what Richard said, I'm going to try and nail down a little bit more detail on when this is all going to happen. Is, are there any clauses in the deal that you struck with Richard about when that first flight has to happen? No. Um, the model that we are operating from, the operating model around which we're building the business, shows that we're going to be in commercial operations within a year, and the first half of next year is when we'll start to see the really ramping of, of customer flights, of revenue-generating flights. We expect profitability in mid-2021, uh, um, and it's a business that, frankly, uh, should achieve real scale uh, by 2022, 2020. Okay. Chamath, we will leave it there. Thank you very, thank much, you very much indeed. Chamath, Richard, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Good luck. We've been listening to a conversation with Virgin Atlantic CEO Richard Branson, as well as the CEO of Social Capital, about their venture to take the space tourism business of Virgin Galactic public as an increasing number of people seek to pay tons of money to just get a glimpse of the edges of space. There is a big question today, how best to adapt to the radical changes uh, currently uh, that are happening in technology and frankly, every single field, whether it's the consumer goods industry, when we see with Amazon, healthcare, uh, or, or beyond. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to say, is Thomas Siebel. He is founder, chairman, and CEO of C3, a longtime innovator in the technology space. Uh, he's also the author of a new book, Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in an era of mass extinction. High drama. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Tom. I, I want to start with, why did you write this book? Well, it, uh, I've been in the information technology industry for four decades. And in the last decade, I've seen, as I go from boardrooms in Shanghai, Paris, Rome, New York, the CEOs and the chairman are all talking about this mandate for digital transformation. And candidly, I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. And like, as opposed to what? Analog transformation? And uh, so I spent about eight years thinking about it and, and, and talking with these executives about what they were thinking about. And then the last two years writing about it to distill what the essence of digital transformation is all about. And the answer? 
Well, as we power into the 21st century, we have a new step function of information technologies that are becoming available, including elastic cloud computing, big data, the Internet of Things, and artificial intelligence. And these tech, at the convergence of, this technology, of these technologies, we find this phenomenon called digital transformation that changes everything about the way that companies operate, the way that they manage themselves, the way they produce products, and the way they serve customers. And we see innovators in this field like Amazon is using AI, IoT, and cloud computing to completely revolutionize retailing. Or Tesla, AI, IoT on wheels, revolutionizing the automotive industry. Or Airbnb, doing the same thing to the hospitality industry. Or you know, Uber, no cars, no drivers, and yet they're you know, dramatically changing trans, uh, transportation. And so um, companies that seem to be adopting these technologies are going to be in a position to thrive in this century. And those that don't will go the way of General Electric and Westinghouse and Toys R Us. It seems like in a lot of conversations that we've had on this show, a lot of executives understand this and are highly uh, focused on artificial intelligence, cloud computing. That is where their energies are going. But do you think that people are thinking abstractly enough about it? In other words, how to deploy some of this information or, or do you think that they're not applying it enough? I think there's a recognition that it's urgent. And uh, whether, and then we see leaders at companies like Royal Dutch Shell or Enel in Europe or, uh, or CAT or 3M or even the United States Air Force that seem to understand it, get it, are taking you know, very concrete steps to realize this future. And then there are nine out of 10 companies that are still floundering with it and haven't quite figured it out yet. And that's the mass extinction part. Um, I think out of those nine out of 10 companies, probably um, six or seven out of 10 will figure it out and three or four will go out of business. So uh, your company, C3.ai, is working with Baker Hughes, which is a GE company, on a venture to use artificial intelligence in the energy space. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we formed a joint venture with Baker Hughes, which is one of the world's largest oil service providers, to bring an entire, to bring AI and IoT to the entire value chain, upstream, midstream, downstream of um, petrochemical uh, and chemical um, exploration, uh, production, and delivery in a way to increase safety, lower cost, increase reliability, and decrease environmental impact. So one thing that I I was struck by uh, that you highlight in your book is that you actually think that big companies have a leg up when it comes to innovation in this space because they have access to the money that they need to to put into it, as well as the data. And I'm wondering how you think that will skew things going forward if sort of the small startups don't have as much of a chance to succeed. Oh, I think the small startups are very well positioned to really prosper by providing the enabling technologies for these big companies to realize their vision. When we get into AI, you know, data is the lifeblood of AI. Okay, and the more data they have, the more the more the more powerful you can be and more precise you can be in, in using AI to customers' advantage, to society's advantage, and to the environment's advantage. So I think there's a win-win here. There's a win for small companies to develop the uh, enabling technologies and the big companies have the data and the CEOs and the management teams with the will and the vision, I think everybody wins. So uh, it's one thing when we talk about corporations, but what about governments? What, it, Where are, say, 
where, what's the government of the United States doing in terms of trying to adopt artificial intelligence and, and how that's going to shape their policies and uh, surveillance? Well, I think the most extreme case and most important case is probably defense. And there is, I mean, we are candidly at war today with China, and the first front is AI. Okay, and Alex, uh, sorry, Vladimir Putin said, whoever wins the battle on AI dominates the world. And it's true, and it won't be Russia. And so there is a dramatic acceleration going on between China that's spending between you know, $20 billion a year now and $60 billion a year soon in this kind of top-down totalitarian command and control state to um, uh, really advance AI for defense purposes. In the United States, we're doing the same thing in a much more messier way because we have a free market economy. So this is happening in garages in Silicon Valley and storefronts in Bronx. But, you know, leaders like Heather Wilson, the Secretary of the Air Force, or Ryan McCarthy, the Secretary of the Army, I mean, these people get it. I mean, they know, they know John Murray, uh, the head of the uh, Army Futures Command, they get it. They know exactly what they're doing. And uh, they're applying AI in, um, in very effective ways to increase efficiency, lower cost, um, uh, more efficient um, uh, uh, logistics to be able to engage in cyber defense and, in fact, cyber war if they have to. One thing I'm struggling to understand is what sort of the next iteration of transformation or disruption is to happen. I mean, we talk about Amazon and we talk about the retail apocalypse that uh, ensued based on the fact that they became less relevant because of the online marketplace. Is there some other industry that you think is next to be disrupted at a similar level due to the uh, increasing use of artificial intelligence? I think there's no industry that isn't disrupted. Travel, transportation, financial services, government services, um, uh, police services, Retail. I mean, you name it. There's no there's no industry uh, that isn't affected. This is a this is a quarter of a trillion dollar software market in 2023. It's an entire replacement market for everything that's happened in the last 30 years in enterprise application software. So there's no industry that isn't upended. Is there uh, is there any truth to the idea that with the increasing use of artificial intelligence, it will make human beings less relevant as employees? Oh, no. I think there will be more opportunities uh, for for people. There'll be more interesting jobs. Okay, I think things will change, just like jobs change when we move from, you know, horse-drawn carriages to automobiles. But more jobs were created, not less. And I think more jobs will be created here, but they will be different kinds of jobs, and there'll be more interesting jobs. But we're not marginalizing humans. There's just, I mean, the idea that, you know, that, that we're going to have, you know, these you know, killer robots that are going to be embedded in your refrigerator. They're going to take all over the household. You know, I, I think this is pretty far-fetched. I don't think we need to worry about that anytime soon. We're not, we're not heading to a, a full Doctor Who type scenario. Um, I, I do want to wonder what you think the government should be doing. So you talked about the army in the United States and how uh, they seem to be very aware of the uh, AI war that they're at with China. I'm wondering whether there is more that should be done, whether it's in the United States or Europe or in China, to uh, fund different artificial intelligence incubators or uh, other other factors that would actually 
give give people a leg up? I mean, do you feel like there's enough of an investment right now on a government level? Do you think they should be more involved? Well, I don't think there's any problem of a shortage of investment in China. I can assure you they're doing it. And I think that the free market can take care of this okay, in the United States and in Europe very well. I think a, a proper role of government, however, relates to social media. I think what's going on in social media is, is very troubling. Okay, and these, these companies are not regulating themselves. Uh, they are misusing uh, personal and private data in, in kind of very nefarious ways. Um, they are, you know, controlling the nature of speech and the Internet. They're controlling what's news. They're allowing these systems to be weaponized by bad actors. And, you know, this, this gets to very fundamental issues like whether or not we're able to conduct a, a democracy. So I think... This is a, a proper role for government, and if, a government, if government does not regulate, uh, I think we're going to have a problem. Tom Siebel, thank you so much for being here. Tom Siebel is founder and chief executive officer of C3.ai, uh, based in California, but he joins me here in New York. He is the author of Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction, uh, with a forward by the Honorable Condoleezza Rice. Uh, another uh, slew of companies in the news are boutique investment banks. Piper Jaffrey saying today it was uh, agreeing to buy Sandler O'Neill and Partners for $485 million. What does this mean for the boutique broker-dealer space? Joining us now, I'm so pleased to say, is Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, I just want to start with what your first impression was when you saw the news that Piper, Piper Jaffrey had agreed to buy Sandler O'Neill. Well, I, I think it's a great transaction for both firms. I've worked with Sandler for many years, going back to when I was at Kroll Bond Ratings. Uh, they came in and were able to execute multiple transactions, I think well over 100, for small to mid-sized banks that we were rating at Kroll. These were banks that it had no chance of being rated by the other agencies. And once they came in and they actually earned an investment-grade rating, they could sell debt to insurance companies. And the guys at Sandler jumped on this opportunity. They had historically been really an equity shop, and they came in and very effectively uh, pursued that. They have wonderful research in that sector, both banks, REITs, small non-bank financial companies. And I think, I I, I hope that the guys at Piper are going to build that business, because it's an area of the market that is not well followed. There's virtually nobody writing research about small banks. And I think it's an opportunity for them. So one thing that I'm struck by is back in 2012, even 2013, actually 2011, going back as far as then, uh, there was a wave of consolidation and talk of much more to come among smaller mm. broker dealers. And it was sort of the eat what you kill kinds of shops that started up outside of the, uh, the in the aftermath of, of the crisis. And I'm just wondering, that kind of tapered down. And what are we left with here? I mean, do we have another wave of M&A uh, that you're expecting to see in some of these smaller broker dealers? I think the consolidation has to come in part because, as you know, the business is extremely competitive and the larger firms have been just hammer and tong in, in combat over larger mandates because that's how they survive. They tend not to chase the smaller deals, but over the past few years, you've seen the Goldmans and you've seen the J.P. Morgans actually chasing deals that five years ago, 10 years ago, they wouldn't have even looked at. 
So I think this is good because, again, if they can take what they've built at Sandler, both the research and the execution capability and the investment bankers, and grow that, they have the space to themselves. Will the small firms uh, eventually have to compete with the larger firms? Yes, once the deal sizes get up into the hundreds of millions of dollars. But if you're doing a $100, $150 million uh, subordinated debt issuance, for example, for a small uh, bank, you pretty much have that business yourself. I'm wondering uh, what you're expecting in terms of potential tie-ups. Are there any firms you're setting your eyes on to see whether they might uh, join forces? Well, among the smaller ones, they're all private, first off, so you don't have a lot of visibility into them. The boutiques tend to fall into a couple of different disciplines, just pure investment banking with no execution, because that's a relatively easy broker-dealer to run. Once you start touching money and you have customer accounts and you do sales trading, it's a much more complicated business and it requires capital. So it really depends where you're going to focus. I think the advisory business is going to remain a boutique because, you know, people like myself, I'm affiliated with a little uh, broker dealer in New York called JVB uh, Securities. It's part of Cohen and Company. And I focus on the mortgage market. That's just my specialization. There are a lot of other boutiques in the, in the market that do the same sort of thing. But the execution side is hard because it's not particularly profitable, Lisa. You've covered this. You know, is anybody out there trading, uh, you know, fixed income? Well, no. and, and, that's, and that's actually what I wanted to ask you. I mean, given the fact that we have pretty narrow spreads uh, in credit when you're talking about potential for profitability, and then you're also talking about increasing use of electronic platforms and, and, and other yes. sorts of services, what's left? Well, that's exactly right. The, the boutiques and even some of the larger independents, both equity and fixed income, have been getting their market share taken away by the platforms. But, you know, platforms can't make markets. Platforms don't sell. And I can't tell you how many times I've had clients who've been trying to use a platform come to us and say, hey, can you help us sell this? Because there's no one there acting as their agent. That's the difference. So I think there is a role for the street, but the technology is changing rapidly, and a lot of people get lured away with the illusion that they're going to get liquidity off of a passive platform that's just a bunch of investors facing one another. And I think the reality is you need help. If you want to sell a concept, sell a security, you have to have somebody to make the case for it who's knowledgeable enough to convince an investor to say yes. And that's a role that I think is going to remain. Thank you so much for joining us today. Chris Whalen is chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Earlier on the show, we were speaking with Thomas Siebel, uh, the author of a new book, Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction, which raised a question, how does one invest in the upcoming wave of transformation stemming from artificial intelligence and cloud computing? Here to give us a sense, uh, at least from one perspective, is Bill Studebaker. He is president and chief investment officer of Robo Global, uh, with its flagship Robo ETF investing in uh, some of the companies behind Robo and some of the technological advancements that are increasingly popular. So, Bill, I just want you to first describe what it is that you're trying to identify in companies in terms of how to decide what to invest in. Okay, good morning. Um, 
Simply put, we're trying to identify the companies that have the highest revenue threshold that corresponds directly to selling the technologies in robotics and AI. So we're going basically to the gold rush. These are the picks and shovels. These are the technologies that are enabling this revolution to happen. We're looking for companies that we think have high revenue purity, importantly also have you know a high technological sort of moat around their business. And in doing this, we employ a specific industry focus on robotics and AI. We have a team that's focus exclusively on this. Uh, we also have seven PhDs in our team. They're the who's who in robotics and AI. Please look at our website, roboglobal.com, to get more insight. Uh, but these are people that have created technologies, that have done research uh, in academia for the better part of decades, that have an amazing perspective on the industry. This gives us a real competitive moat around our business. Uh, we apply an ESG filters to the process after that. So this part of the index constitution is very industry research-driven, fundamentally focused. Okay, Then we pass it on to our calculation agent that then looks at for more you know, passive filters, minimum market cap, exchange rate eligibility, and we can own no more than 5% of the free flow. And out pops index now of 88 companies. They're domiciled in 15 different geographies. And the fun thing about this is less than 2% of these companies are in the S&P and in most traditional indices. So these are you know, investments that investors don't own yet, yeah. but I think they're going to want to have a stake in as we go forward. So uh, you're making a pitch and you're making it strong. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, listen because right now, artificial intelligence and robotics, certainly some of the biggest buzzwords out there. I'm trying to figure out how some of the uh, trade war landscape and the tech war between the U.S. and China affects this. I'm looking right now at your biggest holdings. Oceaneering uh, International is a Houston-based energy company. And then you have uh, Huon Technology, which is uh, based in uh, Taiwan. Uh, that is a company that I don't even know, ball screws, maintains ball screws and linear guideways is the description yep. here. I'm trying to figure out, I mean, does it affect anything? Well, clearly it does. I think there's a short-term impact that there was an adjustment uh, as we were um, exiting the end of 2018, early 19, and there was an impact there. Clearly, this produced some slower economic activity. Uh, roughly 16% of our index is industrial, so there was um, clearly a slowdown in some capital spending there. You know, Having said that, uh, we think the focus here must be on the long term. Okay, I'm sort of indifferent to what's happening in the market on any given day. Uh, if we go to a world uh, where there's a resolution here, these companies are really going to take off. However, you know, if there's a situation where there's more isolationism that goes on, um, countries are going to have to employ more automation to supplant, you know, what they would have been importing from before. So there's going to be continued investment in robotics and AI regardless of what happens uh, politically. That's my perspective. So I'm looking at your robo ETF, which managers, I believe, has $1.3 billion of assets under management. Um, in North America. In North in America. North America. Correct. I, I'm just, I'm wondering whether an ETF wrapper is the correct wrapper if your view is the long term. Well, we definitely think so. I think that active management has struggled for the last decade, really, because people sell what works. 
this style what doesn't work and they're stuck with what's in between okay um, when you look at if, if this evolution that we're seeing I think everyone always looks back in hindsight look at the internet how amazing and disruptive that was people that you know wanted to pick what were the obvious winners think back in the late 90s 2000 it was companies like AOL and Netscape and Inc to me and some of these companies that aren't even around we now look at you know all the fang companies um, with a lot of envy going you know how and why wasn't I there so it's easy Easy to sort of recognize the winners after they happen. You know, we think as you look at this index here, we're at the front end of the most transformation period of time, probably in the history of humanity. And to pick the obvious winners and losers right now, we think is really difficult. I think the key is getting invested and staying invested. And looking back in three to five years, I think investors are going to be very well rewarded. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Bill Studebaker is president and chief investment officer of Robo Global. Uh, shares up uh, of that fund, particular fund, the Robo, uh, the ticker is Robo, R-O-B-O, uh, up nearly 20% year to date. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.